Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today is Wednesday, August 31st. 2022 and uh, lots of news going on today later today um, possibly actually before this podcast goes up i'll be talking with my friend cam edwards of bearingarms.com for our vip gold chat as we do every wednesday which we take comments and questions from our vip gold members and answer them and uh, base our discussions around that and it's one of the most fun hours of the week if you're not a vip gold member well Stay tuned to the end of the podcast and you can find out how to do that, how to save a little money by subscribing a VIP gold. Uh, so stick around to the end of the podcast. I also have my um, latest SRN uh, commentary. I think I included it on Tuesday's podcast, uh, possibly Monday's podcast, but this is the video version of it. So we'll run it again today and hope that you enjoy this about uh, Joe Biden's uh, academia bailout. And that's one of the stories that we're following today. Uh, the Democrats on the campaign trail are not really embracing Joe Biden's student loan debt forgiveness plan, which I call an ac academia bailout because that's exactly what it is. It's a failed business model for uh, higher education in the United States. It traps students in debt that far exceeds the earning potential that you get from a college education. So they are saddling people with more debt than the value of what it is that they're buying. In any other context, that would be considered a scam. <laughs> and in fact, it has been considered a, a scam in this same context when it happens with for-profit universities. The people, same people who are backing this idea, Elizabeth Warren and others, are the first to go after for-profit universities and colleges for doing exactly, or at least allegedly doing, exactly what the student loan program has done for tens of millions of Americans, leave them in debt, and unable to pay it back uh, because the education that they received doesn't have the earnings potential that they were told it would have. That's a program that needs to come to an end. And so, yes, that that uh, very much is uh, on my mind. Uh, and it's going to continue to be on my mind because this is a program that if we're going to spend $600 billion to a trillion dollars bailing people out of, then it's a program that needs to come to an end. And I mean like right now. And if they're not willing to bring it to an end, then those people are, are took on that debt willingly. It's going to be up to them to clear it. It shouldn't be up to the rest of us. It shouldn't be up to plumbers and pipe fitters to pay for the college education of professionals um, because the professionals didn't calculate their uh, the economy of those decisions properly. So, yes, that will definitely be on my mind. Now, bigger story today, and it was last night and today. All up on it wrote about it last night. I wrote about it this morning is uh, Joe Biden's uh, appearance in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, uh, hit, kicking off the midterm push from the White House. And this was just a masterpiece of demagoguery. Uh, I mean, well, there's a lot of demagoguery. I know that anything that Joe Biden does is an actual masterpiece, but it was an awful lot of demagoguery. He talked incessantly about issues that are at best tertiary <laughs> to voters in this midterm cycle. There were 25 mentions of guns in Joe Biden's 45-minute speech. 25 mentions in 45 minutes. Uh, in his speech in Pennsylvania, Wilkes-Barre um, midterm pitch, uh, in which he kept assigning blame to right-wing Americans uh, for trying to overthrow the government um, because based on the fact that they own firearms. Um, and this is a quote 
For those brave right-wing Americans who say that the Second Amendment is all about keeping America independent and safe, if you want to fight against the country, you need an F-15, you need something more than a gun. Well, his same Department of Justice is prosecuting people who overran Congress, <laughs> claiming that that's what they were trying to do, and those people were not armed. They weren't armed with F-15s, F-15 fighter planes. They weren't armed with AR-15s either. Um, they weren't armed with cannons. Uh, they did have um, some weapons, uh, but my understanding is um, few, if any of them, had firearms that were carried into the Capitol, none of which were uh, deployed. The only uh, shooting that took place was the shooting of one of the protesters by a, um, by a security official, uh, Ashley Babbitt. And, you know, that's a, a matter of quite a bit of controversy. So the idea that on one hand they say, well, you're going to need a whole lot more than an AR-15 to overthrow the government, uh, while at the same time they're charging people with trying to overthrow the government with a lot less than AR-15s, with, without firearms at all, is somewhat hypocritical. But, I mean, that gets back to the demagoguery point. Um, what didn't Joe Biden talk about? And I think that this is a much, in, much uh, more interesting point to raise here. Joe Biden didn't talk about inflation. He didn't talk about the economy. He didn't talk, he didn't say, mention the word income, mortgage, debt, or prices. In a 45-minute speech on the midterms, Joe Biden didn't talk about the economy at all. Zero mention of the economy, even though poll after poll after poll show voters are most interested in what uh, both parties plan to do about the economy and specifically about inflation. He also didn't mention his academia bailout. Not once did he mention the, uh, student loan uh, debt forgiveness, even though he's been promoting it. He didn't once mention it in Wilkes-Barre. He didn't mention the border crisis either, except, <laughs> except to push the idea of gun control. And I, I mean, I just have to read this quote because it's so indicative of Joe Biden's demagoguery. You know what the, the Mexicans are? Mexico, which has real problems, causing us real problems. You know what their biggest complaint is? Can't we stop gun trafficking across the southern border into Mexico? Well, we probably could if we, you know, built a border wall <laughs> and had effective border security. And the biggest issue on the border is not guns going into Mexico. It's a wave of, uh, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, a million or more uh, migrants going across the border into the United States without, without any uh, real uh, control over that situation. And that's a border crisis that has been boiling over ever since Joe Biden took office and made it clear that he wasn't really interested in enforcing border security. I mean, this is, you know, Henry Cuellar, who is a, a Texas Democrat, has been loudly complaining about the, Joe Biden's rhetoric and the rhetoric of the administration since the moment they took office and its impact on what's going on at the border. Joe Biden's talking about the border here. He's never actually been to the border as president. He hasn't been down there. He hasn't taken a look at it. Neither has uh, Kamala Harris. I think Kamala Harris ended up actually going once uh, and went to a border station that is sort of outside of where the um, deluge is coming. But this is, I mean, they're talking about gun trafficking going into Mexico rather than human trafficking coming into the United States. Joe Biden mentions fentanyl three times in this speech and never once acknowledges that the main source of the fentanyl um, trafficking that's coming into the United States is the southern border. Are there other sources? Yes, but it's mainly coming across the southern border and is again 
a problem that is related to his refusal to secure it. And so you, you've got this misdirection that's going on, and this is going to be the Biden administration's midterm pitch. They're going to talk about everything, almost everything, <laughs> I should say, other than um, other than the economy. They even brought up pr crime. And this, to me, there was 13 mentions of crime, which is actually a at least secondary, if, if not primary issue in this election, because crime is part of the daily lived experience that voters are going to use to make their choices in the midterms. Joe Biden says, well, when it comes to fighting crime, we know what works. Well, I think you know it doesn't work. Joe Biden's been in charge for 18 months. Democrats have been in control of Congress for 18 months, both chambers of Congress. Has crime gotten better in those 18 months? No. Democrats are in charge of major urban cities. Almost every single major urban city in the United States is run by Democrats or run by progressives who are so far left that you can even question whether or not they're actually Democrats. The, the Twin Cities is a great example of this. How is crime doing in the urban centers? It's going through the roof. Why? Because Democrats have been talking about defunding the police for two years and only now are starting to back away from it because it's a disaster. That forcing the police into retreat has created a, a vacuum into which criminal um, criminals and armed gangs are taking over America's cities. So the idea that Joe Biden uh, knows what works when it comes to crime is uh, at, at very at very best unsupported by what is actually transpiring. Uh, they're still talking about criminal justice reform. Uh, they're still, t I mean, he, the only mention that he made of education was Pell Grants. One single mention. He made, made a single mention of Pell Grants. And was it in connection to debt forgiveness? No. It was in connection to criminal justice reform to alleviate criminal records so that uh, convicts, after they served their time, could still be eligible for Pell Grants for education. Now, you know, maybe there's an argument to be made for that, but it is not a get tough on crime argument. <laughs> And that approach, the approach that's been taken by, by progressive prosecutors across the country, Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, George Gascon in Los Angeles, um, I think it's Alvin Berry, if I'm not mistaken, in New York, has proven to be disastrous on these scores. Absolutely disastrous. So the idea that he's going to sit there and lecture people on this is how we deal with crime, well, we see how Democrats deal with crime. And it's... Terrible is the answer to that. They deal with it terribly. They don't know how to handle it. Uh, they they have these progressive ideas that all you need to do is, is get the police out of the way and all of a sudden you're going to have a utopia. And the hard truth is that you need to have law enforcement active, engaged, you know, with, with good engagement policies, uh, what we used to call community policing, um, you need to have them well-resourced and you need to make sure that um, that they're accountable, but you also have to make sure that you're defending them when, when, when they're really just enforcing the law properly. And we're not doing that. We're not, we're not, uh, we're also not keeping people in jail when they should be in jail. The zero bond policies have been a disaster. Um, and, and this is again, Gascon, uh, Boudin, um, excuse me, it's Alvin Bragg. Alvin Bragg, I said Alvin Berry, Alvin Bragg in, in New York. All of these 
prosecutors pushing these zero bond policies, no bail policies, um, have just turned arrests into a revolving door. The criminals are right back out in the street committing more crimes when they should be behind bars awaiting, uh, awaiting their, um, the trial for the crimes that they have already committed. It's, you know, and again, if they can make bail, they can make bail. That's, that's, you know, that's up to them, but they have to have resources to make bail. And if you arrest somebody often enough for these crimes, then sooner or later, they're going to run out of those resources. You've got armed gangs that are, are, um, that are basically looting retail stores in urban centers and forcing these retailers to pack up and go home. In about a couple of years, you're going to see, um, because they're doing it with, with convenience stores or doing it with grocery stores as well. Um, you're going to start seeing more complaints about food deserts in the urban cores. And it's going to be because nobody wants to open businesses in the urban cores any longer because the police don't have the resources or the political support to enforce the law. So this stuff by Biden uh, in, in last night's speech is just simply misdirection. It's demagoguery. They don't have a plan for crime. They don't have a plan for inflation. They don't have a plan for the economy. Uh, and they're not even talking about um, their their debt forgiveness plan, the academia bailout, because I think they're starting to suspect that it may not be as politically, um, as, as politically, what's the word for it? Popular, I guess, is, you know, or, or sustaining as they think it might be. And the reason for that is this, and I'll just boil it down to what it is. Democrats have campaigned on class warfare for decades. And in this particular case, they just chose the privileged class <laughs> over the non-privileged class. They are, they are telling the working class and the, and the middle class that they have to pay for the college education of professionals because the professionals can't afford to do it and you can. <laughs> That's not sustainable. And that's not politically viable either. And the, the more that that comes out, I think the more that we're going to see um, uh, people, especially Democrats who are in uh, tough races uh, this cycle, run away from that. And in the end, they're not going to be able to run away from the economy either. Uh, we're going to start getting some uh, bad economic data. There's, uh, I already have written a post. It'll be up later today, probably by the time this podcast goes up, about a new ADP report. ADP's back. Um that shows that we only added 132,000 private sector jobs in the month of August. Now, ADP is not a great predictive model. Supposedly, they took the summer off to retool so that they could be more predictive of the Bureau of Labor Statistics official reports. Um, they had a big miss on July using their new retooling. So I'm going to say, be careful, be wary of this. Um, we also thought that there was going to be a, uh, uh, that it was gonna slow in July and turned out to be a huge month, 528,000 jobs added. Um, so it's interesting, but we're, we're getting to the point now where we're hearing about layoffs. We're getting to the point where we're hearing about, um, about retailers and, uh, other businesses starting to, um, starting to stop growth or resize, um, Bed Bath & Beyond today, um, is one yesterday it was Best Buy, uh, because of, uh, declining consumer interest. That tells us that there's a recession coming and that's going to impact job growth. And again, the job growth numbers may still be decent for August. That th those numbers come out on Friday. But if ADP's right at least about the trend, it's going to be it's going to be significantly off the pace. And that means that the Biden administration and Democrats across the board are going to have to start answering questions again about the economy. 
And of course, we've also got the CPI and PPI numbers for August coming out in, in the second week of September. And this is just as the as the home stretch for the midterms kicks in. So there's a lot of things going on there. One last story that I want to talk about in the podcast, and I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll wrap things up here. Glenn Youngkin is quietly putting together a pretty extraordinary um, uh, effort in making himself a contender in 2024 if he chooses to run. Uh, last night he was on Tucker Carlson. I have a post that's going up uh, at noon today. It went up at noon today, uh, talking about um, what he has um, what he has discovered about the state of Virginia. And very quietly, in February of 2021, the Democratic state legislature uh, passed a bill that was signed by Democratic Governor Ralph Northam that allowed its state air con- air pollution control board to uh, create agreements with other states to synchronize policies. And apparently one of those agreements was with the state of California on electric vehicles. And the state of California had announced a policy, I think it was last week, that said that 35% of all electric, uh, all, all vehicle sales uh, in two years had to be um, electric vehicles. And by 2035, I think they're going to phase out gas-powered vehicle sales altogether in the state. And because Virginia has apparently signed an agreement with California to synchronize its um, emissions policies, the state of Virginia is now bound by what California has decided to do. And Glenn Youngkin calls that ludicrous. And he's right. It is ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. Um, And this is a populist type of issue that I think really is right in Youngkin's wheelhouse. I mean, this is the type of uh, lack of... um, uh, self-governance that went into that 2021 campaign, um, you know, the the parental rights revolt that Youngkin um, that Youngkin rode to victory, a narrow victory, mind you, but still a victory in Blue Virginia, uh, based on the fact that Terry McAuliffe and Democrats were scolding parents for trying to uh, for trying to direct education policy at the school board level. Uh, they were called domestic terrorists for um, for raising a, raising stinks at school board meetings about the direction that school boards were taking their children in. This is even worse. I mean, at least the school boards were elected; they're accountable officials. Uh, this is just the wholesale outsourcing of self governance by Virginia to California, uh, and and done by Democrats. For a very specific purpose, they wanted to they wanted to um, align with uh, California on electric vehicles in order to spike the market for the EVs. I mean, you can understand what the purpose was here, but it's absolutely insane politically to tell Virginians that they are bound by whatever the California legislature decides to do on electric vehicles. In this case, it may not even be the leg- the California legislature; it's probably its own. Um, uh, advisory board on air pollution, on emissions. I forget what it's called, but there, that has a, a great deal of authority inside California. So this might not even be elected officials in California that are determining this. It might be non-elected appointed officials in California are going to dictate to Virginians what kind of cars they can buy. And that's politically insane. But that's apparently what Democrats set up in February of 2021. And so I, in my post, I have the, uh, you know, I have some supporting links for this. And Youngkin is, you know, absolutely 
incensed over this, and he should be. And my guess is that Virginians are going to be absolutely incensed over it, and they should be. But beyond that, and this is something that I'm, I, I explore in this, Youngkin's actually doing pretty well in a blue state for a Republican governor. He's at 55% job approval and 51% personal favorability. In both cases, he's ahead of Ralph Northam, who, of course, isn't governor any longer. And, uh, and this is, um, it, it shows his, he's only been in office for less than a year, so let's not get carried away. But it does show that he's been able to thread the needle in Virginia pretty well between conservative populism and centrism and sort of land on the right spot. Now, Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin did the same thing on abortion, which was wise. They, they went to the center on abortion so as to take that issue off the table in elections in their states. And it's worked. It worked for Ron DeSantis in Florida. It worked for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. Other Republicans are pushing harder on total abortion bans. And while, I mean, that's a position I support, uh, the fact is, is that the electorates in any of these states probably aren't there. They're probably more in the middle where Youngkin and DeSantis calculated. And that's smart. It's smart for state-level politics because it protects your Republican um, elected officials and candidates from being um, caught in this sort of media squeeze over extremism on abortion. But what it also does is it sets you up on a national basis. DeSantis knows this very well, but Glenn Youngkin is apparently building the same kind of platform here. And so I think that this is very definitely a, uh, an effort, first off, to govern Virginia properly and to try to turn it around back into at least a purple state. And I think he, I think Youngkin's making some good inroads there, but also to, um, to have a, uh, to build a national platform of effective center-right governance that could matter in 2024, especially if Donald Trump decides not to run. But even if he does decide to run, it gives voters a couple of really solid options, Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin, as well as Donald Trump. And so in the absence of Trump, you've got two governors outside of the Washington Beltway Right, who are doing, who are who are actually making progress in um, conservative populist policies and aligning the Republicans um, back into the back into the center a little bit more, so as to capture more of the vote. That's important, especially if you're going to run for president. And so it's interesting to see where that's going. Uh, DeSantis is clearly positioning himself for this. He can't talk about it, of course, because he's still got to win his gubernatorial election. It's less clear. It's, it's less explicitly clear for Youngkin. Youngkin is, he can only serve one term at least, um, you know, at a time. You can't run uh, for re-election uh, as a uh, governor in Virginia. And normally you don't even try to run for a second term, even non-consecutively. Terry McAuliffe was actually um, uh, an anomaly there. He sort of broke tradition in trying to get back into that office. Uh, Virginia, usually just culturally, it's one and done, and they like to move on to somebody else, even if it's uh, even if they're changing parties. So I think Glenn Youngkin is definitely looking ahead. Um, and look, I mean, he's, he's, in, um, he's in range of the Beltway. Um, he's got access to uh, all the different think tanks there. Um, it's, it's definitely a viable idea if he decides to follow through on it. 
I think in large part, that's going to depend on what happens with Donald Trump and what happens with Ron DeSantis. But still, keep your eyes peeled because Glenn Youngkin, I think, is is making is advancing his pitch for 2024. All right, folks, coming up next, my commentary uh, again on the student loan bailout, um, the academia bailout, as I put it, for uh, SRN News and Town Hall, followed by how you can subscribe not just to this podcast, but to our VIP and VIP Gold programs and support conservative commentary in a very hostile social media and media and mainstream media environment. Thanks again for watching. I'm Ed Morrissey. Don't miss what's coming up next. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. The White House claims that Joe Biden's proposed student loan debt forgiveness plan will rescue tens of millions from an unjust burden. It's really just a shameful and illegal abuse of executive power by Biden, spending hundreds of billions without congressional authorization. It does nothing except to bail out academia and the ideological factory it has become. The demands for such debt relief prove that the financial model for college has failed. Tuition has risen so high that the extra earnings from a college education no longer covers its costs. When thousands of Lawrence Tribe's Harvard, Harvard graduates are trapped by their student debt, it proves a total market failure. The only beneficiaries of this failed market model are the university's deluged in consumer demand fueled by government-protected loans bankrupting students. And that directly benefits the progressive politicians that get support from the progressive ideologues produced by academia. And now it's the working and middle classes that will foot the bill. It's a massive consumer fraud, and we'll all be paying for it. I'm Ed Morrissey. Thank you for watching and listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support the Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member, too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.